Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode of Declassified contains discussions of abusive relationships, human trafficking, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. If you need help, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is reachable 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year by calling 800-799-7233 or by texting START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. You can find more resources online at thehotline.org. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Navid Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure, and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This week's episode of Declassified, it's a little different. Our next guest is not a member of law enforcement or national security, but it's very possible, in fact, it's probably likely you've already heard of her. Sarma Melangailis is the former owner of New York City Vegan Hotspots Pure Food and Wine and Lucky Duck. And if you've seen the documentary Bad Vegan on Netflix, you know exactly where this is going. In 2017, Sarma ended up pleading guilty to tax fraud, grand larceny, and conspiracy to fraud, having diverted almost a million dollars in monies from backers and employees. She ended up serving four months in Rikers Island. But that's not the full story. And to hear Sarma tell it, the whole thing centers around her now ex-husband, Anthony Stranges, an alleged con man, abuser, and gambler. Strangest used several pseudonyms and allegedly told his wife, Sarma, she needed to funnel large sums of money into his work as some kind of special ops assassin. And as incredulous as it would seem that an educated, worldly person as Sarma would do this, when you hear how he described his military service and combat background, it obviously played on her emotions. And as far as anyone can tell, Strangest background in the military, in the intelligence world, in combat, was completely 100% fabricated. Throughout the relationship, and especially while Sarma and Strangest were on the run from authorities, Sarma was told she was in danger. And 
Although Sarma was never physically restrained and never physically kept from leaving, to hear her tell it, she certainly felt unsafe, though not for the reasons that Anthony told her she should be. My conversation with Sarma raises real questions about manipulation, about the fact that when it comes to combat, when it comes to people who claim to have combat or intelligence background, it is easy to be swept up in the moment, to be conned. Whatever you might think of Sarma, this is also a cautionary tale about why it's so important to expose these types of cons. The irony of it, Sarma, is, is obviously that <laughs> when you talk to like former CIA officers or people like that, they actually do, they are actually allowed to list it on their LinkedIn site. And that's what I think shocks people. And, and this is all a good faith point. Like what you're saying is that the perception of what we think these people do is something that it sounds like he just played into, right? And the perception, as they often say in the CIA, perception becomes reality. You know, it, look, watch the documentary. One of the things, if I'm not mistaken, he claimed to have been shot. Um, do you remember any specifics about what that event, what happened there? I mean, did he ever show you a scar? Was there any like supporting evidence that that was, you know, that was true? Yeah, that's another thing he was very vague about. He did have some weird, like there's some place where he did have some weird kind of scars and he, there was something on his arm that looked like there was like a piece of something under there. And I think, I think I write about it in my, in my book draft that it looked, it almost looked like a Lego piece. And then I was like, maybe it is a Lego piece, <laughs> but you know, whereas he acted like it was some kind of, you know, shrapnel from some right. injury. But if I asked, you know, if I asked specifically what was the story behind that, I, you know, I, I would, I, again, I would get a bunch of words. I wouldn't get a very specific answer. And and maybe he did that intentionally because it's, you know, when people give you specific answers and they have to be consistent with them. Right. I never, you know, I didn't get consistent answers about anything. So it's almost like they draw you into this world where you sort of kind of exist in a haze. Yeah. So I sort of just always had like these vague, fuzzy ideas of what he was, you know, what, what he said he was doing and where he was going. And, and I think, again, that, there's something so powerful about somebody doing all of that and, and it being almost incomprehensible to me that somebody would, would kind of fake that. It's hard to describe. I mean, but he did things like, you know, I'd walk into the room and I, I think he had, you know, on his screen, like a little, what looked like a, like a CIA thing on the, on the screen. You know, to me, it just seems so ridiculous that like somebody would do that <laughs> and fake it. And, you know, all kinds of things. I remember one time I, I walked in and he was looking at some of that like black and white footage that looked like it was from some war scene or something. And he acted, you know, acted as if he was kind of like evaluating it or something. And obviously it was just something he pulled off the internet. But, you know, how would I know that? And again, just seemed so ridiculous that he would do all of that. Well, you know, as you're explaining this, do you think, you know, it's one thing to think about this as like it was a fraud to try to just manipulate it you but it really sounds like he genuinely believed this stuff do you think he personally believed what his his own lies that's a very good question i'm again i'm not really qualified to analyze his psychology but i wondered that as well that you know to some extent was he sort of living his own delusion and i know you know that's something i i mean i think that's something that's kind of common with with personalities like this you know, there's a very prominent example of somebody who seemed to be kind of living their own delusion, who was our prior president, you know, where they, they sort of believe their own delusion. Right. Um, and, and again, I, I think that there probably was some element of that. You know, I, I wouldn't know. And, and again, 
there's nothing straightforward about it. people always ask me, well, what was his end game? And I think it really is a game and it's very much about power because it's not like he, you know, extracted all this money and then hopped on a plane to Mexico or stashed it away. It was like, it was almost as if it was just a game and, and he was like the cat and I was the mouse. And then eventually it was like, oh, well, you know, this mouse is all tattered and used up and nothing more here. So I guess I'm done with this and I'll move on, you know, because as far as I understand, after the fact, he didn't have any resources. He hadn't put money away or anything. It was just all gone. Jeez. I mean, which leads me to really wonder that, you know, from my perspective, having having actually done this, you know, the worst thing you can do is let your ego drive your actions. And it seems like he legitimately, you know, perhaps believed some of the stuff or wanted to believe some of the things he was saying. Like he said, that what was the end game? Do you think, I mean, is it, was he someone that was motivated intensely by his own ego? I mean, is this something that he couldn't let go? Like if it became, if he stopped telling the lies and it became obvious that it wasn't true, is that something that he just couldn't deal with? I mean, he seemed so committed to these lies. Yeah, I think there must be some element of that. I wish I could find a quote. You know, I have a quote written down somewhere on my messy desk in a pile somewhere. But I, I wrote it down because it it seemed like it kind of accurately described the power of this colossal sense of nothingness and inadequacy to kind of get over that. Somebody like him, you know, they do the, the exact opposite and they sort of create this whole sense of themselves as somebody incredibly powerful and you know, they have a very grandiose sense of self. And of course, it's built on fictional narrative because he didn't build anything or accomplish anything in his life. It's all just a narrative in his head. So probably to some degree, he kind of did, to some degree, he must have kind of, I don't know, at least partially existed in that reality almost as a way of, as a way of coping. And again, you know, we start off this conversation, it just feels like, I'm sure the Sarma of today would be like, yeah, this obviously doesn't didn't seem right. Doesn't seem right. But when did it become apparent to you that he really was well full of BS? That he wasn't didn't actually work for the government? Was there this sort of aha moment, or was it more of this sort of slow, gradual realization? And the whole thing was slow and gradual. So everything took a really long, long time. It's hard to kind of summarize these things because. You know, that's why it became such a joke with the film. I don't call it a documentary because I don't think it's a documentary when they're intentionally misleading people. But, you know, they, they sort of made a big deal out of this this idea that he made me believe my dog would live forever. And that was overblown. But then also what he did was sort of so gradual over time. And it wasn't so much that I believed his lies. It's that I did not believe them. Right. And by that time, right. he, I was so kind of stuck and trapped that, you know, it was just you're sort of suspended in this weird psychological limbo where you don't not believe them and you psychologically want to believe them because so much damage has already been done that to try to extract yourself from it is not only sort of logistically and actually difficult, but probably psychologically difficult because then you have to admit to yourself that you were a complete fool and a moron and and yet you can't really disprove them. So I think that's part of what goes on, how they're able to kind of slowly over time kind of loosen your own grip on your sense of self and your sense of reality and 
and then in a very skilled and deliberate way manipulate that to to their benefit. You know, as you as you talk, Sarma, it, it it I'm just drawn back to this conversation I had with this Department of Homeland Security investigator, a senior official, and again we're talking about cults and talking about cults and when it comes to things like human trafficking, and and they were saying that even after people leave, you know, um, and they're trafficked, that they often are unable to recognize that they were trafficked, that they were the victim of. In fact, in many cases, they will be sort of staunch defenders of the person who trafficked them. And I don't mean at all to imply this to you, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it does sound like there is this cultish manipulation that really does impact so many people. Is there... Draw me a connection. Is there is there a way? And again, like I know that's a, what I'm talking about with the DHS uh, investigators, a totally separate thing. But yet there seems to be some parallel. And it was just you and, and Anthony, but it really does feel like it was almost this cult like relationship and this manipulation he had over you, and you know, doing things like manipulating you for your sense of safety and and all sorts of things. Is there some connectivity to how he treated you and sort of this larger cult behavior? There's not just some connectivity, there's there's a huge amount of connectivity. So, you know, some people look at my situation and they label it as coercive control, which is a thing that's been labeled. And they did interview a guy for an entire day, Dr. Evan Stark, who literally wrote the book on coercive control and coined that term. And all of those elements were in play. But when you look at cult leaders and, you know, Keith Raineri of Nexium, for example, I relate 100% to what those people went through and uh, you know i've sort of become a little bit part of that community of people who got out of cults and on the other side of it are talking about it and talking about you know what happened and the tactics and i've read a lot of books about it and not only do i identify with them a lot but also when i look at people like Keith Raineri and other cult leaders i see so many similarities between you know those people and and Anthony so i really think that it is the, you know, this dynamic of it being a cult of one. And I think that, you know, we would all be much better off if there was a more thorough understanding of cult and cult psychology, and then also a much more thorough understanding of sociopathy and those traits and how to recognize them, you know, because I think, again, like I said, it's hard, it was hard for me to imagine that somebody could lie so confidently or kind of put themselves out there and in situations that to me would seem, you know, risky, like, well, what if somebody figures out that you're lying? But, but, you know, all these, all these traits of, you know, if you go down the list of things that would indicate somebody is what people call a sociopath, the cult leaders share all those traits as did um, Anthony Stranges. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it reminds me, Sarma, that, you know, even the CIA, they talk about manipulation and everyone is subject to manipulation everyone uses manipulation right so the distinction here is my kids will come in and say i really want a cookie it's like 11 o'clock at night or i want to you know play for another hour on the computer or whatever that's manipulation <laughs> clearly it's not manipulation out of malice right the intent it's the right. intent that makes the manipulation specific here and i think with anthony it's the same thing is that people use manipulation but his intent it's hard to really understand what his intent was other than to get money. But like you said, he blew through but that. It, it wasn't, it wasn't the money. It was, it was power. Right. Right. And that, and, and I think it's almost like for somebody like him, like a game, 
I think he had thought that he had set things up in such a way that I would take the fall. And I did to a large extent, but but he also did. So I don't think he expected that he was going to spend a year in jail. But I think that for him, it was more of like an inconvenience, like, ah, <laughs> oh, well, you know, like it, right. it's, it's more of an inconvenience than some sort of like devastating thing. There's There's a book I always recommend. I think we may have talked about it, but called Confessions of a Sociopath. Yeah. And that really more than any of the books written by psychologists helped me to understand that type of mindset. Again, because it's just hard. The problem is that people analyze their behavior through the lens of what we all consider to be normal, rational behavior. And that just doesn't work. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like people saying that Putin is rational or Trump is rational or, you know, their their motivations aren't the same as ours. And so I feel like people always, you know, at their peril will incorrectly analyze the behavior of people who lack a conscience. You know, uh, yeah, obviously when it comes to understanding, again, in spy world, right, we would, when you're asked to go do something that is, you know, many would say is irrational, right, to be involved or to walk into a building that you know is unsafe and things like that. The, the thing, Sarm, is always you're looking for the that Venn diagram where that person's motivations align with yours. And you know, I, even someone who is irrational, if you understand what their motivations are, you can understand you can understand how they work, how to unpack them. And it just Anthony seems like someone who, as you said, it's there's not a really it's a power thing, of course. It's to a lesser extent is money, but that also equates to power, right? But it, it is it's manipulation and it is completely irrational. Again, like there's no it's hard to point to a, a something that benefited him long term. It seemed very, very ego driven. And you know, you've been very, very outspoken about the the Netflix documentary. You called it a movie. Talk to me a little bit about. Uh, it, there's been a couple of developments. One is the one of the leading people who was in the documentary, Vanity Fair, is now um, apparently sold another project based on you to Peacock Streaming. You know, when you think about manipulation, you, and you talk about the talk to me a little bit about how that the documentary and how the director and how you felt that you know they were sort of perhaps less than honest with you in terms of the direction of how they were portraying this. Well, I, I wrote a long piece because I kind of had to get all my thoughts out in a kind of organized way. So I wrote a long piece that I put on my website about how it shouldn't be called a documentary and how there really needs to be a new category, um, especially in this age that we're in right now where you know being able to distinguish between what's fact and what's not is so critically important. And so why are we suddenly blurring that line when documentaries are supposed to be truthful stories. And, you know, there, there's just a, an instance where there's at least one place where sort of the audio was, the interview was cut in a way that it sort of took an event and made it seem like it happened this way when it didn't happen that way at all. It happened another way and giving the impression that it happened the way that they gave the impression that it did, you know, sort of was, was just among the things that would allow people to come to a, an incorrect conclusion. And then also just using this call audio completely out of context when, you know, I trusted them and, and all along I said I wanted the product to be honest and useful and I wanted whatever they used to be used in a way that was honest and useful. So it's not like I handed them specific little clips of like here, you know, here's this uh, copy of text messages or, or Gmail chats. And here's this little bit of audio. I just gave them everything, including, you know, my entire journal. I didn't give them bits of it and say, here, use this bit, use that bit. I gave them the whole thing, all of it. 
and a bunch of video too that was turned turned up. So I wanted it all to be used in a way that was honest and useful. And I thought, you know, perhaps they'd make mistakes because the story is really confusing. Sure. But if they did, they would be honest mistakes. And that that certainly wasn't the case at all. And so I kind of make that argument in great detail in that essay on my website. And I feel like, I mean, I, I turned over all that stuff anyway, and I, I do tend to trust too easily, which is, you know, part of what got me into the situation in the first place. But to have had them take a story, knowing what happened, knowing everything that they did based on all the inputs that I gave them, and then intentionally put this sort of twisty ending as if intentionally making things ambiguous and allowing some people to come away with the conclusion that, you know, maybe I was in on it all along. And, you know, hence the title Bad Vegan. You know, why why right. was it that title Bad Vegan? And then also that just played into allowing Netflix to market it in a way that was really kind of grotesque. And so instead of being a project where people could come away from it and learn a lot and learn how to defend themselves and protect themselves against something like this or recognize it in somebody else, it was just more of a sensationalized narrative, which was precisely what I didn't want it to be. And so, unfortunately, you know, the people who recognize what happened and who didn't sort of fall for their little tricky ending are, you know, people who watched it all and they remembered that in the beginning I was intentionally recording him or they just sort of have the sense to know that like, okay, well, that's clearly must be out of context. Or a lot of women and some men who unfortunately recognize what happened because something similar happened to them. They'd been subjected to a certain right. type of manipulation where, you know, they feel isolated and alone and nobody understands and everybody thinks, how could you be so stupid? So those people got it. But that's one of those sort of like preaching to the choir thingies where you're not really doing a service to the world if you're not educating people who aren't already educated about something. So I thought on the other side of this film that I'd be out there talking about, you know, psychological abuse and how to protect yourself and how to how to recognize the red flags and how also very importantly, how do we get to a place where the criminal justice system has a much better understanding of it? And instead, I spent sort of the weeks after the film's release kind of trying to correct the record and you know, trying to clarify what really happened and trying to correct the record, which was completely exhausting. And then also just being bombarded by um, people yelling at me that I have no remorse and I never apologized to my employees. And it was like, well, I didn't make the film. It was probably 12 to 15 hours of me being interviewed years ago when I was also in a different state. And so what they used and what they didn't use is beyond my control. But but also worse than that was, you know, people coming away with the conclusion that I'm a sociopath and I'm the scammer. And that was only encouraged by Netflix and their marketing showing, you know, a picture of me looking kind of diabolical, eating a cash salad and that being on billboards, which may still be up there on Sunset Boulevard and mm. Abbott Kinney, I think. And, you know, and just the way that they marketed it was so kind of grotesque and insulting to all the people who have been subjected to this kind of psychological manipulation and it's something that people really should better understand and instead there was there was kind of nothing put forward towards that goal you know um, it, it, as you're talking it's netflix obviously built this as a documentary and you know documentary sort of in its perfect world falls under this sort of journalistic standard but right you know it feels like clearly they chose an ending, and clearly from the marketing standpoint, I mean, we've seen some of the, mar the Netflix marketing bits, you know, salaciousness, and they, they're trying to portray something from a marketing standpoint, which, you know, when I read a story for Newsweek, um, as a journalist, we don't put a promotion 
<laughs> on the story in terms of like, you know, trying to make it seem something it's not. Uh, there, there are ways that we promote the stories. Clearly, this was something else. And, you know, just just for the record, you know, for someone who isn't familiar with the story, who's watched the ending, I would say that there's potentially this implied idea that you are a still in touch with Anthony and B you have this sort of, you know, nice ongoing relationship and C it's like this, you know, that it was a, this big, this big gag and, you know, talking to you, I don't get a sense of any of those things, but clearly that's the impression that they're leaving with. Is there some way, I mean, just to set the record straight, can you just address those three points? Like you haven't talked to Anthony in forever, I'm guessing, and you're not, not well, in a while, the last conversations I had with him were specifically for the documentaries so without him knowing that. So a couple of things. One is the reason that I was in touch with him in the first place had to do with primarily Leon's safety. So when I was going into serve three and a half months, he was getting out before I was going in, which was terrifying. And I was afraid that if there was some way that he could really, if he really wanted to just completely destroy me, which seemed like his only goal, right? Because he didn't get away with money in the end. You know, he, he served time. And so the only thing that made sense is his motivation was to completely, absolutely destroy me, which also brings me to the, you know, what baffles me is that when people come to the conclusion that I was in it all along, it's like, in on what? <laughs> my entire life was destroyed. Right. <laughs> you know, people that I cared about, my, my employees, some of whom had, who'd worked with me for you know, 10 years, wh why would I destroy everything I'd worked for and cared about and hurt people? And, you know, for what? It doesn't make any logical sense to me, um, which is, again, naively why I didn't expect that I would be sentenced to, um, you know, to serve more time. And I sort of naively assumed that one has to have intent. Um, and not only did I not have the intent, but logically it didn't make any sense. So, you know, again, in terms of people thinking that I got away with something, like I would say got away with with what? And then the phone call, I don't know, I guess the people who came away with a conclusion that he and I were still kind of on this friendly basis at the end aren't keeping in mind is that, you know, that that was a that was a phone call that I recorded deliberately for the film, right? So, it's not like I was recorded on a hot mic, you know. That wasn't like a a normal conversation. And so, you know, over a period of however long it was, you know, I had a couple of phone conversations with him that I recorded. And so, you know, my my goal was I wanted him to sort of say some of the stranger things that he had said to me in the past. And then also, I think that anybody that's been through this sort of thing, you can't ever expect that they're going to explain themselves or, you know, apologize or have any grasp of the horrific nature of the destruction that they caused, right? You're never going to get that gratification of them going like, oh, wow, you know, I'm really sorry. Or, yep, you got me. I, you know, I conned you and look what I got away with or whatever. Like, they're never going to give, right? So psychologically, the way to interact with somebody like that is just to, in your head, you're like, I'm, I'm talking to a crazy person, an irrational person. I'm talking to somebody who, you know, is delusional and thinks this. And so my yelling at him, which I did once subsequently, um, is is like, not only is it not satisfying, it it like makes it worse. Right. Because he doesn't care. And in fact, it's probably the opposite. He's probably gratified by seeing me twist and get angry and frustrated and upset. So, you know, if I laughed or was talking to him like, 
in this very casual way that is in no way at all an indication of my sort of taking lightly what what he did and what transpired that's not the case at all it's just it's really hard for people to understand and so unfortunately you know it was easy for the director to take that that little bit of audio and put it in the end which again was entirely deliberate because he he put it after there was one article which i think said that the film spends the entire time showing me as a seemingly reliable narrator only to cast doubt on the whole thing in the last 10 minutes yeah you know and it's like why why did he do that why would he do that when he knows what's true and what's factually true so i would argue that to have subjected me to that is its own form of severe cruelty and clearly he seemed to be he seems to be enjoying himself like you said this is the thing about someone who's you know pathological or psychotic like you said, there's there doesn't seem to be any sense of remorse. Have you ever seen him express any no. remorse? Like no, he seems no. unable I mean, to. No, well, he just he wouldn't ever feel it, right? So it's right. like he's never going to feel bad. There, and there's nothing I could say that would make him feel bad. It's kind of the other way around. It's like the more I tried, if I tried to make him feel bad and yelled at him and said, like, you know, you destroyed me, and how could you do, you know, and you took, you know, like what he did to my mother. I mean, it's like, there's no way to express kind of the, the gravity and the, the enormity of the d destruction that he caused and, you know, how painful it was for me to, to feel like I'm, you know, responsible because I let him into my life and I let him do these things to me. So it's like, I feel responsible. I feel responsible that all these people were hurt. And even though I lost more than anybody else, it's like, I feel responsible. Like it's my fault that these people lost money and that, you know, my, my employees lost their jobs. And so I'm the one that has to live with all, not only the debt, but the remorse and shame over all of it. And he, shame is something that you know, remorse and, and shame over having hurt people is certainly not something, it's, it's almost the opposite. He probably right. gets some sort of, it's sort of like gleefully titillating to him that he's, you know, caused so much destruction. And, you know, so trying to yell at them <laughs> is not going to induce any feelings of remorse in him. It's just, it's just not possible. So I think that um, people having an understanding of that helps to put, to put things in context. And, the other thing that's hard for people to understand is my apparent lack of agency. So, you know, this idea that we ran off together is just completely false. Um, and also, I mean, when he took me away, the business was still intact. I had just worked my ass off to get it reopened and running again. And then he, he kind of took me away from everything. So it's not as if I hadn't paid my employees and the place shut down again. And then we ran off. It was like he pulled me away. And then I never got to go back. And then, you know, he was able to take me away, um, basically like leaving and driving ac across the country. And it's hard for people to understand. If you imagine, you know, my mind being a complete like jumbled, confused tornado and, um, you know, and also just beyond like distraught, basically kept me in a state of fear and which is also something that that cults do and it, it it's not dissimilar to i mean the, the patty hearst book where people didn't understand right. place there were times when she could have run but they put her in a constant state of fear and then also you know made her think that the consequences would be worse if she left um and so yeah it was absolutely the same with me and it was 
you know, again, if you asked me to explain kind of well precisely how would my life be ruined, um, I mean, he kind of already had to some extent ruined it. It just obviously I would have been recoverable before had I gotten out right. earlier. But you know, it, it was always this very confusing, this very real terror, but but really kind of confusing because he also always made me feel like I was being watched all the time. And to some extent, it was sort of actual, like my emails being monitored, you know, my phone is being monitored. But then there was like this weird sense of like, I think it was brought up in the film, how he always referred to his brother as if he had this like omnipotent right. brother, which kind of reminded me of the whole like Thor Loki thing. <laughs> but it got to the point where I almost felt like I was always being watched beyond just possible actual cameras and whatnot. So being in a state of kind of intense and prolonged fear, I think is another very destabilizing effect on one's psychology. So, you know, it's just a very complicated situation and people who've been in it understand that they understand, you know, why people don't, don't run when they get the chance. And it's, it's hard to understand if you haven't been in that situation before. All right. So, you know, Sarma, the, the picture you paint of when you were on the, you know, as you call it on the road, um, which I think is this sort of, even now, perhaps, I wonder if you're struggling with trying to comprehend exactly what happened to you. But again, I want to read you something that um, I've been talking to this DHS investigator you know, who deals, who dealt a lot in his professional career with trafficking and, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they will look for when it comes to trafficking is there's, there's three elements. It's force, fraud, and coercion. And to that point, it's not uncommon for people who are trafficked, I, people might be surprised to hear this, to actually be performing criminal behavior, criminal things as part of their trafficking. They don't even realize it. And some of it's not just, you know, we're not just talking about sex work. We're talking about people who are doing things like money laundering or, you know, collect donations. Like there's a, a significant element here with specifically with labor trafficking where people are coerced into doing things. Essentially they do things because they believe they have to and they don't have the freedom to not do so. And even if it's not mm -hmm. done with direct violent threats, just the picture you're painting, again, it just, it does feel like he was using coercion. He wasn't using force. Although you do hint that, or you do say that like, you know, he moved you around to places that to isolate you. I mean, it, it seems like this yeah, was very I mean, I much think, to control you. I think you. force can be, force can be, you know, an actual gun or physical force, but force can also be psychological. Or totally. Verbal or, you know, it's a different kind of force. Going back to this question about the documentary, I have to say, I feel like they did a disservice because, you know, people who are trafficked, people who are, you know, put in this situation, it's, they are victims. I mean, there's not, you know, again, it's hard to understand. And I think this is what traffickers really, fo you know, gravitate towards. It's one thing to say, get in the van. Here's a gun. If you don't get in the van, I'm going to shoot you. It's another thing to do it. So through coercion or implied threats of physical violence, right? Like this, like, again, this idea that if you leave, it will be far worse than staying. I personally feel um, independent of your story that that was a missed opportunity for Netflix, a missed opportunity for the director. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's not only a missed opportunity, it's like they almost made fun of it. Not almost, they did. So, I mean, it was one thing to kind of 
you know, for the sake of some sort of mysterious flourish or, you know, to create controversy and have people, you know, debate like, was she in on it or, or whatnot, or to confuse people. And so to have ended it the way that they did, but then the way that Netflix marketed it, I mean, there was this perpetual pop campaign thing that would show up in your Twitter feed as like a promoted thing. And you would click on it and you think that you're like, what? It's a company that makes perpetual pop, like, huh? And so, you know, maybe somebody clicks on it thinking it's like some sort of longevity, you know, supplement or something for your for your dog. But it's this video that looks like a spoof of a commercial. And they're completely mocking psychological abuse. They're completely mocking the situation that I was in. And I'm not personally sensitive or outraged on my own behalf. I'm sort of outraged on behalf of everybody that's ever been subjected to psychological manipulation, that they're that they're making fun of it in that way. It's not only the missed opportunity, it was like they didn't want the opportunity. They wanted to to turn it into something kind of sensationalized. And um, and that perpetual pup thing was just kind of mind blowing. I mean, I sent it to my sister and she said, who did that? And I was like, that's Netflix. Right. And she said, that's impossible. She was like, that's impossible. They couldn't. I'm like, no, no, it's possible. And, and it's not disputed. They did that. They did that. I think it's still up on, you know, up on YouTube. And so, yeah, it's like not only did they not help educate people about this kind of thing in a way that would probably quite literally save people's lives and or at least their livelihoods, they made fun of the whole thing. So that's why I, I want to keep speaking out about it again, not not so much on my own behalf, but on behalf of psychological abuse overall. And it's it's so much more common than people realize. I mean, I sure. I couldn't even begin to count the number of messages I've gotten from mostly women, sometimes men, but mostly women who've, you know, understand what happened because they went through something very, 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 very similar. And maybe in some cases, less severe consequences, maybe in some cases, more severe, just in a different way. You know, I was at Rikers for three and a half months when I went back and um, you know, over time I learned a lot of people's stories and, and heard them talking about kind of what landed them there. And I feel like there's a lot, a lot of this sort of coercion element of hearing some of the stories. I just sort of, all of these little buttons were going off in my head and I feel like it's probably a lot of the women there were there because of men having yeah um, well it's a power dynamic them. right I mean, I mean, like, not, I mean i'm not it's like again there were definitely like actual criminals there and um sure you know but some of them for sure i felt like okay this is this is they're clearly here because they were manipulated by some dude you know into yeah. kind of selling their drugs or carrying their drugs or something that got that ended that that landed them there well that i think that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand and it have a lot of trouble understanding but it actually is something that happens you know look i mean if you're we talk about a power imbalance and you know when it comes to spousal abuse or people who stay in marriages or stay you know in a relationship because they're afraid that you know their kids will be taken away or something will happen you know there's all sorts of things that abusers focus on as mm -hmm. a, a, a threat and as a fear, and they use that to manipulate people. Look, you know, there's in, in the spy world, there's, there's, there's this acronym called MICE. It's money, ideology, coercion, ego. And that's understood as the fundamental building blocks of why people are motivated to spy. And coercion is always the one that you don't want to use because coercion is the thing that will keep people doing something just like at the bare minimum. But it's an effective tool. You want to find people who want to do it because they want to be there. There's you know money or it's ego. 
but in your case, when it comes to people who are abusive, there is this coercive, like this fear. And look, this is just me speaking personally, but I, I really feel strongly that Netflix really did a disservice by minimizing that, that psychological abuse, that people, there are people who stay in really, really violent and dangerous relationships because they're scared to leave, because their abusers make them afraid that if they left, it would be far worse than staying in a potentially deadly relationship. And part of what makes leaving scary is knowing that nobody's going to understand. And that's the disservice. Right. That's very true. Because that's what makes leaving that. I mean, part of part of what makes leaving scary is going, oh, my God, this situation is so insane that nobody's going to believe me or it just seems too crazy. So that's part of why a lot of you know, again, usually women, but people stay is because you feel like nobody else understands, you know, like you're going through something alone, nobody else understands, and nobody's going to understand. And why is nobody going to understand? Because there isn't a better understanding about this in general. And this this could have been an opportunity to educate people about how this happens. And again, like I said, it's like the people who understand it already understood it. But the people who didn't understand it, I don't think came away for the most part, with an understanding of, of how this happens at all. That's why people like to just reduce it down to, I must be stupid, you know, because they weren't given that clear explanation of, of how what happened happened. Well, all right. So let's take this um, one step further here. Putting the documentary aside, there must have been this moment when the arrest happened, maybe it was at that, at that moment or afterwards, were this tr were this relief? I mean, did you ever feel relieved that you were now free from Anthony? Was there some moment that you came to be, which is, look, I'm not saying that your life is easy now or that there aren't things you have to overcome, but you got out of a very difficult and dangerous relationship. Was there some moment where you realized that? There was no moment because it was like stepping out of one nightmare and into another because, you know, the other being into this world where nobody understands what happened, you know, I'm getting blamed for stuff. And then also having to learn and accept the reality that everything was really gone and destroyed because that whole year that I was gone, for all I knew, the restaurant was still operating, like somebody stepped in and took it over. And, you know, somehow, the ownership was sorted out some somehow for all I knew when I was arrested, like the restaurant was still operating. I probably I knew odds are it wasn't, but I mean, it could have been. I didn't know. I never Googled it. I never found out what happened until after I was arrested. It, it's more relief kind of on the other side of it. I don't know if you watched Puppet Master, which is was also on Netflix sure. and is, is kind of a similar story, but told in a, um, you know, in a sort of more matter of fact way. But incredibly devastating. One of the one of the women in there, um, you know, kind of spoiler alert, but is basically kind of pulled out of her life and into a situation which, as you describe, seems very much like trafficking. And she's gone for 10 years. I mean, 10 years. And so, you know, watching that, I just had this, you know, I felt obviously completely horrible for her, but had this sort of sickening feeling of like, you know, what if we hadn't been arrested? Like, how long would this have gone on? Would he have just continued to drag me around or found some new way to get me to be a resource? Or, you know, I don't even know, but that felt pretty sickening that it could have gone on. And so that's why, I don't know if I said it in the, in the film or, I mean, I've said it, I've written it, I've said it in places, but I feel great affection, even in the moment for the detective who arrested me. And then he came to see me a couple of times in the Tennessee jail 
because he pulled me out of a horrible situation. And I think he could sense that, you know, having with his experience and just, you know, having arrested Anthony and then coming and seeing me in this weird sort of dazed state. I think given his experience, he, he sort of understood the dynamics of what was going on. I remember him saying to me, like, it's okay now, it's over. Like, it's okay now, it's over. <laughs> yeah. That's what you say, you know, when you're rescuing the person out of the shed who's been locked up in there for years. You right. know, it's so I think he could tell that that it was a situation um like that. And so I felt grateful that he could see that and also just grateful to have been pulled out of that situation finally, even though in the moment it was painful because again, it was like, you know, you're you're coming out of some diluted reality where everything's sort of suspended in limbo land and then you're having to face the real reality, which is like, oh, look, look at all this destruction that was apparently caused by you and everything's gone and now you're completely dependent on everybody and you're getting blamed for it. And, you know, as somebody who never wanted to depend on other people or be a burden on other people, then coming out of this, I'm like the ultimate burden on everybody because I have nothing and yet needed so much right. um, in terms of, you know, just kind of being supported and defended and being able to kind of figure out how to get get back on my feet. So that's part of why it's like relief isn't exactly what I felt. I mean, yes, relief to be away from him. But again, stepping into like this incredible, painful, devastating mess made it not a very like sweet relief. So, you know, Sarma, this is sort of shocking that to hear, you know, you're saying that Anthony sexually exploited you. And I think that this is a very, you know, one, it's a very disturbing thing to contemplate. But, you know, I think it's also something that's important and brave to say, because I think a lot of people, when they think about trafficking, or when they think about, you know, exploitation, especially of women, there's a, you know, they often think about this sexual component, and certainly has to do with power. I, I want to be careful, and I want to be, you know, deferent to you. Can you talk a little bit with whatever you feel comfortable, what that, I mean, what was that? I mean, and was it a fundamental part of the relationship? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? I wrote about it um, in this, I wrote this letter when I was first out on bail and, you know, I'd be taking the, the subway from my sister's house in Brooklyn into Manhattan to meet with, you know, my lawyer or somebody or something. And I was so angry and I had all these thoughts, you know, when you're like having a fight with somebody in your head and you just keep like running these <laughs> debating it in the shower. Like, I always win those. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you always, yeah. So I, I kind of was doing that all the time and so frustrated that I, I pulled out my phone and I started writing this letter that I titled Dear Mr. Fox. And it's funny because it's like it's still in the notes on my phone. Um, but I, you know, copied it out and emailed it to myself and I kind of turned it into this document. And I put it online because I was making the point that that letter was one of the first things that um, I sent to Chris Smith, who was the the film's director. And so he read that whole letter and, and knew, you know, pretty much everything that I say in that letter, at least most of it was, you know, corroborated by all the other stuff that I provided them. So he knew that to be the truth. And then I was asked about it in my in my first interview at the tail end of what was like a 12 hour day. So it was around 12 noon until 12 midnight. I think it was about three years ago. And I was asked about it and uh, you know, I was exhausted and I, I spoke about it and I, I never saw that footage. I don't remember it, but um, somebody else who was there said it was incredibly compelling and, you know, it was so compelling. And I, I was sort of surprised that it wasn't in the, 
in the film. And so I think kind of as a response to people kind of saying, oh, you were in on it and calling me a sociopath and telling me I should still be locked up. And it just was so painful to kind of be getting a lot of that incoming. And then also I wanted to show what, what Chris had read early on and what he knew to be true. And so I just threw that, I put that letter up on my website. It's, it's quite long, but in it, I kind of, I detail what he did. And there was a similarity to the dynamics of the way that he did it was similar to uh, what Keith Raineri of Nexium did with India Oxenberg, where he sort of made her do things almost as if it was like for her benefit. And this is something I've either heard about or read about with, with other cult leaders as well, where, you know, they sexually exploit the women, but almost in this way that like, it's, it's as if it's some kind of like twisted therapy for them. So it's definitely like a power thing, but, but it's just this very sickening, like way of, of forcing somebody to do something. Because again, it's not like physical violence. It's not like you're being kind of like tied down and restrained, but, but yet you're being forced to do it in a way. So it's a grotesque element of it all. And it's just sort of among the many ways in which one gets kind of broken down psychologically where, you know, resistance almost just feels futile and exhausting. I mean, and again, I, I want to be very sensitive to this. Are, are you saying, for example, that, you know, there wasn't full consent perhaps? Well, again, this is where, you know, it's not like we're talking about like date rape and was there consent and was there not? It's not sure. like that at all. This is more like, you know, this overall situation I was in, I obviously wasn't consenting to. Of course. And, and he, he acted like this was something that I had to do, right? Like I had to do it. And, and would even like, there was an awareness that it was helpful if I could drink first because that would help me get through it. So he would like, Terrible. Bring me some beers or whatever. Like here, you can. This will help you get through it. So yeah, I was. I would drink first, just because you know, given the opportunity. Like, of course, I'm going to drink first if if I have to do this. And again, you know, I think it was a a disservice to leave it out. You know, when I first saw the film, there was a part of me that was relieved, just because I was of kind of felt mortified about speaking about this to the world and not remembering what I said. And then I'm, of course I'm thinking like, you know, I was like probably ugly crying and now there's going to be memes of me ugly crying out there. I don't, you know, so part of me was like, whoo, okay. You know, that's not out there, you know, just because it would have felt mortifying. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's why I said all along, I don't mind being embarrassed. The situation is like obviously embarrassing enough as it is, but if it, if it's useful, and helpful, you know, so I feel like probably I think it, it would have been incredibly useful and helpful to have included that part in um, in the film. It's a very real, significant part of what happened. And to have left that out is like leaving out a huge part of the story and also leaving out a part of the story that would, I imagine, help a lot of people, you know, particularly women in, in this type of a situation, you know, to help recognize any of it, any enough details where whether it's going forward or looking back or thinking about their friend or their sister or somebody enough details that you go oh wait that's kind of familiar like that's kind of familiar and like oh wait that wasn't okay or you know like so to have left that out i think was you know and i think it was left out because to have put it in they couldn't have ended it he couldn't have ended it the way that he did i think if he had left that in well i mean it it you know i think it would have made you far 
far more perhaps sympathetic in the documentary than, and they oh, cl- definitely, yeah. clearly, and so is that part of the reason why you were like, sh- you had a separate room from him towards the end? I mean, that's one of the things that they talked about is that you guys had physically separate rooms and hotels. I think he just knew that that's like the only way. Um, I mean, cause we did early on too. So even when he, most of the time when he made me travel places with him and, you know, again, people made it seem like I was like enjoying myself on these luxury vacations. Cause I put a picture on Instagram and it's like, well, yeah, but I wasn't, <laughs> I don't know. Like I was not enjoying myself, but most of the time we had separate rooms. I think he just knew that I couldn't, you know, I mean, I tend to like to be alone and have my own space. I think he probably knew that I would have kind of gone bonkers right. if he had forced me to be in the, in the same room with him the whole time. And maybe there was um, some benefit to him as well sure. in terms of him being able to be alone part of the time. Is You know, and again, this is not something that the documentary touched upon at all. I mean, the sort of sexual relationship, you know, physical relationship, it was very, very, very much omitted, which sort of, to me, felt jarring. Um, and so what you're saying is that, you know, it's part of this mind control and it was so repulsive to you that you had to literally be drunk to be intimate with him. Is that? Yes. Yes. I mean, and I think people who have been in any kind of you know, prolonged, disturbing situation. Like, I don't, I don't know this, but I sort of suspect that if you've been in some kind of gross, like an ongoing situation with say, you know, like a coach or an uncle or like a priest where it's super disturbing, but it's ongoing. And you're sort of like, you know, again, they're not holding a gun to your head, but you're kind of doing it and you have to do it anyway, because whatever, they create those conditions. It becomes so repulsive and disgusting it's like this dark, sickening thing. And so that's why it's, it's so extra grotesque when people kind of imply that like, you know, I was, I was with him, you know, voluntarily or I, or I was in love with him or I did it for like, no, no, he kind of repulsed me in all kinds of ways. So, sure. um, you know, he was just really messy and gross and stinky and blah. I mean, that was so, clear when they, in the documentary, when they got the hotel rooms at the end, yours was like, pristine and his was like filled with like detritus and pizza boxes. Yeah. I mean, they, they obviously staged that because they weren't there in the hotel rooms, but they did go to Tennessee and, you know, and, and that's just how it was. I mean, I told them it's like Ray Brown, the detective and yeah, he um, he was, he added the color to it. They were there with them. And so, you know, they, they saw what his room was when they, they arrested him and that there was, you know, it was just messy and there was trash everywhere. And I'm one of those people that like, when I leave a hotel, um i'll like i'll clean you clean up yeah i am too yeah i'm embarrassed by it right right. i mean i clean up i leave a nice tip and and he was like the opposite it's like it was almost like he would make a mess for the sake of making a mess and it was so grotesque on a human level to kind of be the person that does that and and you know it's almost like metaphorical like he's leaving this physical mess behind in every hotel room he's in and i made the mistake once or twice of trying to kind of clean up for him because I just felt bad for right. whatever housekeeper is going to come in here and have to deal with this. It was just so disgusting. So, you know, him doing that is almost like this metaphor for like the kind of destruction that he causes on a larger sense, wherever he goes and messes left behind for other people to clean up. It seems so lopsided. I mean, you know, he's clearly someone who, I don't think he went to college, right? And 
you know, you're again, it's this like you're, you really are these polar opposites. And I think the fact that there was, you know, coerced intimacy, I think to me paints a picture of the power imbalance in the relationship between the two of you. Yeah. And I think that um, from what I understand and from everything I've read related to cults and, um, you know, other situations that are you know, somewhat like this or whatnot, it's just another element of compromising somebody psychologically and, and having control over them Yeah, is doing that. And again, it's like, it's, it is really, I, I understand that it's really hard for people who've not been in that situation to understand like, well, if you didn't want to do something, you didn't have a gun to your head. Why didn't, why didn't you not do it? And it's like, eh, not doing it wasn't really an option. And it's hard to understand, hard for most people to understand how, how it gets to that place this you you know you paint a picture of of really i mean i don't think it came through in what netflix put forward I mean, far more bleak um and you know you're out of that now what would you say mm-hmm. to people who say that your life is quote unquote back on track i mean it, it, is it are you back to you know this world pre all of this or is this still a lingering thing that you're going to be dealing with um no not at all i mean <laughs> i'm not you know, I don't have my business. I my I was given the impression that they were going to clarify at the end of the film that I had been paid by the producers, not Netflix, because the, the film was created and then sold to Netflix. And I think there were iterations of editing and whatnot. But, you know, normally in a proper documentary, the subjects aren't aren't paid, which is kind of the way it's, it's supposed to be. Very often they make exceptions and bend those rules or whatever. But anyway, the point is, of all the money that was siphoned away and gone and all the money that's owed, what what my employees were out and what they were entitled to receive was the part that weighed on me the most. And so I had said that I would participate in this, but I wanted it to be a vehicle to get that money to my employees paid. So that's what happened early on. It was March of 2020. It, it just so happened to be the day uh, New York City restaurants shut down due to the pandemic. Like that was the actual day in March that the wire went through and then went to their attorney. So I felt like at least there was, you know, a little bit of positive news that that money was available on a day when, to the extent that a lot of those people still worked in the restaurant business, was a, an unfortunate day. I've spent a lot of time working on a book draft, which I'd wanted to have finished before, um, but I, I didn't. I, you know, was kind of working a regular job for day to day and and writing my long form version, um, not version, but like writing in long form my story with uh, an enormous amount of the inputs that the conversations, my journal entries, and kind of going through in detail what happened, trying to analyze it from the perspective of what was it about me that made me a good target in terms of timing and my own psychology and my own background and kind of analyzing it along the way and trying to, to sort of make sense of it all. Um, and I'm sure I know there's elements of it I'll probably never make sense of, but I'm trying to make it the most kind of instructive for people. So they really, really like deeply understand at least as best as one could how it happened. And then even for, for women or people who've been through something like this, it's comforting when you hear and read about other people having gone through the same thing. Cause then you feel like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not so alone. You know, I'm not this crazy broken person, somebody else out there understands. So I'm finishing that and for the most part kind of tried to stay away. You know, I didn't do any big interviews after this came out because I, I was kind of on the, on the defense trying to clarify what, what had really happened and, and sort of 
trying to correct the record and I didn't expect that to be the case. So I sort of stepped back and I considered various venues, um, you know, that wanted me to tell my side of the story. And I just, I kept thinking, I just need to write it all myself and and not have somebody else edit it and um, and put it up there on my website. So that's what I did. And then now I can sort of step back and hopefully finish writing my book and try to sort out ways to handle all of the debt, which at least that part was, I think at the end of the film, I, I say that I kind of wrote down all of the money that was owed in terms of, um, you know, all the various categories and that it added up to close to $6 million, which just seemed so. And then I think I like, I think Crazy. I say that I, I almost laughed because it was such a preposterously huge number, which then led some people to believe that like, I don't take it seriously, which is not the case at all. It's more just that it's like so huge and, and overwhelming, almost that it doesn't even feel real. And so, you know, it's like, Anthony's not going to figure out, Anthony's not going to pay anything. He's not going to ever appear with money and repay any of, any of this money. So it's on me to do that. And again, I, I was given the impression that at the end of the film, it was going to say that I didn't profit from the film other than, you know, this payment was made on such a date and went to, to pay the employees what they were owed. So that like, at least people watching it would go, oh, okay, well, the employees were the amount that they were owed in the end was all repaid. And that wasn't there either, which was like just yet another thing to, you know, cause I wouldn't be like a, you know, a bad vegan if I, you know what I mean? Like right. that was my, my main concern was getting that part of what was owed paid, you know, before anything else, because they're the ones who, for them, it was a larger portion of their net worth. And, and it was the part that weighed on me the most. So that was also something that was left out at my expense. So clearly you've got a long road ahead of you. Um, mm -hmm. But I would imagine that you would say that today is obviously better than any day when you were still sort of under this thing. What advice uh -huh. would you give to someone who's listening, who's perhaps in this sort of power dynamic relationship or an abusive relationship or one that is, you know, psychologically or coercively abusive, what would you say to them that they, that, who, that they have had this overwhelming feeling that if they leave, their life will be worse. And so they stay. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, every situation is different, but it, it, it probably is very, is very much the case that it might temporarily be a little worse or it might temporarily be really difficult or you might temporarily be out on the street or maybe your career is ruined or something, but it's like on the other side of it, it like it's only going to get worse. You know, it's like, it's not going to get better by staying. It's only going to get worse. And, um, you know, I'll point out too, that among the tons and tons and tons and tons of messages I've gotten from, you know, mostly women, some men, you know, it includes people who are lawyers. It includes a woman who had a PhD in clinical psychology. And she said, my whole world was turned upside down. I didn't know somebody came in and was able to wreak havoc on her life and manipulate her. And she has a PhD in clinical psychology. So, right. you know, this idea that it has anything to do with being smart is just not accurate at all. And so I think that might give people a false sense of protection. You know, if they think like, well, I'm a smart person or I'm a lawyer, or, I'm a, I'm this, I'm that, I, you know, I'm, I'm smart. Like this wouldn't happen to me. It, it, that's almost a dangerous stance to take that you're not vulnerable. Thanks again to Sarma Melangailis for joining us. Make sure you check her out on Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really does help us both grow and bring you this original content. As always, until next time, I'm Naveed Jamali.
for Newsweek.